where we talk about ideas that matter. I am glad that you have made the connection and are with us today because our connections are a little off today, unfortunately. So I'm glad that uh, you're here to be part of the conversation. Our guest and co-host, we're having some technical difficulties connecting. So I am hoping at some point during the hour here, we're going to be able to get that cleared up and to have Melissa Adams, who is the president and executive director, uh, will be able to join us. She is from the Diversity Institute. And as you know, uh, our, our first Saturday of the month is always dedicated to looking at racial healing. And racial healing is um, a concept that's been explored by Anjali Singh. And uh, her, her book is called The Racial Healing Handbook. And I highly recommend it. And we're up to chapter eight in, in our racial healing. I'm going to just get it started just to talk about. And in this, uh, on this show, I'm going to encourage you to think about calling in. Uh, let, let's have a conversation. Our number is 952-946-6205. Again, that number is 952-946-6205. It's hard to talk about race. It just is. Uh, Everyone uh, around the whole world struggles to understand uh, what is race. And in, in our country, we've really had a hard time in the last 400 years coming to grips with it. Uh, and we all have been traumatized. That's the, uh, the concept that's talked about in the Racial Healing Handbook, is what is our trauma that we all have suffered with and how do we react to it? Uh, what, do we, what do we do? Um, who's supposed to solve racism? I mean, it's a tough question. Whose responsibility is it? It's out there. We know it's out there. And yet there's a lot of people that say, oh, I'm so tired of talking about it. I'm fatigued. Oh, why can't we just get over it? It happened a long time ago. Well, the problem is that even though it happened a long time ago, it also is happening right now. Um, and sometimes as we're looking and teasing out, you know, what does this all mean? Uh, we, we blur it. We blur some of our other identities by just looking at black and white or people of color and white. And we don't get to explore other identities. And Anjali Singh has proposed that part of the healing is understanding how to embrace all of our identities, um, our sexual orientation, our gender, our class, disability, religion, age. All of those things are intersecting with our racial identity. And intersectionality It's a theory that's been developed by black feminist scholars. You may have heard of it. Um, It's thinking about the ways that our multiple privileges and oppressions, um, how do they all interrelate? And how does that then impact our experience of race in terms of oppression and privilege? It's probably no surprise that like white women do have less power than white men. But we're, women are a little higher on the social class, and we can buffer the impact very often um, and not get hit as hard as women of color. Um, experiencing poverty can also blunt some aspects of our white privilege. So in her chapter eight, which is towards the end of the book, what she's really trying to encourage us to think about is healing from racism 
And it, it can be bolstered, the healing process, by looking at our other identities, looking about who we are. It, it asks more deeply, who are you? No, no, really, who are you? As we've thought about who we are as, as a white person or a black person, um, we know that things impact us. But how do we reclaim ourself? Um, you know, sometimes the concept of white has kind of obliterated everything else. We're literally whitewashed into this concept of what it means to be white. Um, and I'm going to encourage you to give me a call and tell me what you think about um, reclaiming our identities. Everyone has been hurt by racism. So how do we move forward? How do we reclaim who we are? And to get the conversation going, I'm going to get my friend Patrick, um, who is going to act as my co-host today, uh, to share, you know, what do you think about uh, the challenges that we're facing, especially when it comes to when you're interacting with folks that say, I'm just fatigued, I'm just tired, why can't we just get over it? What's some of your responses, Patrick, when, when you hear stuff like that? Well, I think for one thing, you know, as white people, we can kind of just fade into the background and we don't really feel like dealing with it. And I know a lot of people of color say, you know, I can't just fade away when I don't feel like dealing with racism because it's, you know, for lack of a, a more appropriate, I mean, it's kind of hard to take off your skin. Right. Well, what's our responsibility then? Is it, you know, do we what do we is it okay for us just to fade in the background you know maybe sometimes it is but a lot of times it isn't what, it, what it, do we it's it's more about just recognizing that that's that's part of your privilege is you know i can just fade one of the things that i read from that kind of put in perspective it was a a pro basketball player who was white and he was talking about uh you know, some of his uh African-American teammates who were talking about, you know, we're tired of dealing with, you know, the racism that, you know, that we deal with when we play games and, you know, from, from, uh, from the crowd and the, and this, and this player who happens to be white was thinking about, you know, I can just kind of fade into those faces in the crowd. Like I have the privilege to be able to do that. And my teammates don't have that privilege. It was, so I think it starts with just recognizing that, you know, that's that's part of your privilege is mm -hmm. I can just fade into that crowd when other people don't have that privilege. And, you know, now to address your question of what do you do about that, you know, I don't really know. But I know recognizing it is probably a good first step that just just understanding that you have these privileges, it, that that's just kind of the, the start of getting on a, a better road. Mm. You know, there's so many different social identities. I mean, we, of course, um, you know, are, we can explore our sexuality. You know, uh, where are we on the uh, male, female? Uh, how do we self-identify? Uh, what does that look like? Uh, our religion? You know, there's a lot of privilege um, around being a white Christian. I'll just put it out there. And there is uh, there are challenges if you're Muslim, Eastern, Jewish, Hindu, Sikh, Buddhist. What does it mean to even be mainstream? I mean, is, main, is mainstream being questioned? Um, 
and rightly so. Uh, what uh, what opportunities are there for us to look at multiplicity? Um, how comfortable are we at multiplicity? So often I see out there, um, whether it's in interactions uh, with friends and family or Facebook or TV, this this great um, fear that somehow something is going to be taken away. And we look at the last election uh, for the Virginia governor, so much based on this fear of critical race theory being taught, or it's not even taught until law school, but this great fear that we're going to upset white children with ideas about what happened in our country. Um, What are we protecting? Why are we defensive? What's the defensive about? Um, Why aren't we comfortable in our skin to allow there to be the recognition that there was pain inflicted and that there are barriers to this day that we can all help undo. But what stops us? What what stops us from addressing the racism? Uh, What stops us from feeling comfortable? I know that a lot of people don't want to say the wrong thing. And they're very afraid of saying the wrong thing and somehow that's going to make it worse if they, just, if they just don't say anything. And it strikes me that being able to fade into the crowd, like you were saying, Patrick, is perhaps part of uh, being afraid to address it uh, because you're afraid to say the wrong thing. What's your thought? No, I totally understand that. Um, I, I think that that there that. No, I've got to admit, I'm very afraid of saying the wrong thing. I, you know, I struggle with, you know, knowing what the right thing is and knowing what what my response should be to a particular situation sometimes. And how do you get through it? Well, I, you know, I kind of look for, you know, I look for help. I, I, but. No, I'm still learning on uh-huh. how to how to, you know, what my response should be. Yeah, I think we all are, and that's why on Connections Radio Show we like to explore how do we make those connections. You know, what what ways can we explore to to take brave steps, um, to get outside our comfort zone, and maybe make some mistakes along the way, and being okay with making those mistakes, uh, but moving forward. We're going to continue the conversation. We're going to look at socialization. We're going to look at opportunities for growth and opportunities for perhaps even more self-love for all of us because I think that's part of the answer as well as we understand who we are and we gain more confidence in who we are. Maybe we're not so threatened about letting people be who they are as well and making sure that we have a level playing field that allows all of us to prosper. So stay with us. We'll be back. And please consider calling in. Love to have a conversation with you. 952-946-6205. Thanks so much for joining us. And we'll look forward to talking to you more on the other side of the commercials. Welcome back to Connections Radio Show where we talk about ideas that matter. We are talking about racism. And my big question to the audience, and I'd love to have you call in and tell me what you think. Whose job is it to end racism? Can it be ended? What have you experienced in terms of where you're at right now about wanting to end racism? Love to have your thoughts. Our number is 952 
956-6205. Again, that's 952-946-6205. I know it's tough to talk about racism. Um, but I want to encourage you to think about sharing maybe the first experience that you had in terms, even when you were a child, that you went, hmm, what's up with that? That that seems strange. When you first encountered, can you remember when you first encountered uh, what you would now call racism? And I'm going to start with you, Patrick, my friend. Do you remember the first instance when you were a child or a young adult, uh, when you realized, like, wait a minute, what? What what just happened here? I'm trying to think back. So I was thinking back in high school. I lived a very sheltered suburban life. Um, so it, it's kind of tough for me to just pinpoint, uh, oh, that's the well, – because back in high school, um, you know, we read Huckleberry Finn. I think it was Huckleberry Finn. One of those – you know, whether it was – Tom Huck, Sawyer yeah, type. One of those yeah, two yeah. – um, which obviously have been criticized because of how often it contains the N word. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we had a, a high school teacher who um, did not censor when, you know, she was referring to the, uh, the dialogue in the book. And we did have a, a black, I, I did have a black classmate, and she was talking privately about how uncomfortable that made her. And, you know, she was saying, you know, she was talking about another student. Oh, but she's using it in context and, you know, but it was pretty clear that my classmate was not okay with this. Right. And uh, so that was kind of the first thing I was really, you know, that came to mind with that. What did you take away from that moment? Was there, was that your first sort of like, hmm, there are challenges out there that we, it seems to me that that person, the teacher, dismissed her feelings, you know, and, and um, I know that, was it a gaslighting situation? <laughs> it was like, you know, uh, well, how often do um, people's feelings get dismissed? And was that your first instance where you were grappling with a little bit of cognitive dissonance? Hmm, is this just a book or is this, um, is this something that's hurtful? I think at the time I still didn't really know enough about the concept of racism to really, I mean, I knew it was a thing and, mm-hmm. you know, but I mean, when you're a kid, you know, the first time I think it was in a history class that the subject of the N word was brought up and, uh, the, you know, the teachers, you know, called it the icky N word and there will be consequences if you're caught saying this and, mm-hmm. You know, but again, you know, we were suburban, sheltered white kids and, mm-hmm. you know, and I have to be very careful with how I say this. But, you know, when you're a kid and you start learning stuff like the F word and yeah. stuff like that, and you don't realize that the N word is not just like the F word. Right. And that's kind of a whole a whole different thing that, you know, as suburban white kids, we didn't really understand that because we were just you know sheltered white kids in the suburbs well i think that's interesting that you bring up sheltered um and and it's true and i look at the virginia uh challenges with how education was being approached and how so many parents felt very strongly about education and not wanting to have a discomfort um in dealing with something that they felt their children shouldn't have to face and shouldn't have to deal with, that we could just put it in kind of a different context so no one feels bad. Uh, but history is about 
learning, and learning doesn't always feel good. Learning doesn't always feel right. Um, that's why we want to learn history so that we can either make some course corrections along the way or create a better uh, environment and world. Um, but there is a concept that shelter. There's something about suburbs and sheltering. Um, tell me more about what you think about sh- the whole concept of sheltering, and it's very prominent, I think, with white people wanting to shelter. Well, the whole idea of the suburbs is, you know, you know, and to paraphrase, you know, so you can have the conveniences of the city without the city, which means, though, you know, people of color that you don't want are not part of your life. You don't have to deal with them on a daily basis. You can, you know, commute up 35W into Minneapolis, go to your job, go back to your house in the suburbs and not have to deal with people you don't want to deal with. Yeah, and they also created it very, uh, with the redlining, making it very difficult for financing for anyone that um, wasn't white, especially in the early days in the 50s and 60s when they were getting created. And and you may be wondering if you're tuning in, why are two white people talking about racism? You know, it seems to me that we should have, you know, a multicultural approach, and we should. But I think there's also a time to call out or, uh, as a good friend of mine says, call in. Um, white people to white people about what do we have to figure out here? Uh, I heard another friend say the other day that it really made an impact. Um, so often in corporate uh, diversity and inclusion programs since the 60s when we were dealing with EEOC, the problem of racism was always put on the people of color's shoulders. They needed to assimilate. We needed to just help them understand how to be part of the organization. Um, it moved into you know a variety of uh, ways to help people of color fit in. Well, do we need to flip that around? And perhaps how do white people figure out how to do this? Is this a white person's problem that's not created uh, an opportunity where we all have a level playing field and we're not just um, hiring and developing people that look like us that we feel good about because we get along. Um, what's the bigger concept here? You know, what is our challenge of asking white people to ask white people about why isn't this working and what is our job to end racism? What's your thought, Patrick? Oh, there was a Facebook post I've seen going around a little bit recently that I think sort of illustrates your point is that slavery is taught as the history of black people and not as the history of white people. And, you know, that kind of opened my eyes a little bit because I'd never thought about it in that sense before that, you know, that's, you know, that's, that's just a a crappy thing that happened to, you know, other people, but, Mm -hmm. you know. It, it's not taught that, you know, white people did this. And even though that in this country ended a long time ago, but the, the, the foundations and, you know, the repercussions have continued to this day. And the assumptions that are underlying it. And, and those get translated. We, uh, I'd mentioned that we were going to talk about socialization. Well, they get mentioned um, in our schools like we've been talking about. Get 
it gets embedded in television. I, I don't know if, you, if you've ever watched some of those old 70s, even go back to the game shows. There is some really outrageous stuff that was being said about women and people of color without blinking an eye. Now, I think we probably progressed from the 70s, some of the assumptions, and, and we're being um, more cognizant and intentional. But we're still dealing with things that we've learned, even medicine in terms of how women are treated, how people of color, they're um, not, their word is not as accepted in terms of pain. Um, either it's hysteria or you know you have a higher pain tolerance and, and there's a dismissal of this. And I worked for many years in working with the disparities in the health system. It gets translated there. Uh, it gets translated in our business. It gets translated in language, in media, in just patterns of thought. And, and then it gets reinforced. And then what do we do with that when it it becomes a mainstream thought. You know, what is mainstream? And how does that impact what we think is appropriate and inappropriate, how we make our decisions? Well, there's more to talk about. I know that we're coming up to the um, end of this segment. But I want to talk about not only our socialization, but what are some maybe a liberation from some of this? And uh, we'll get to that at the next segment. Thank you for being with me. And thinking about this stuff with me. If you want to share in the conversation and join me online, you can call 952-946-6205. Again, that's 952-946-6205. Thanks so much. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Connections Radio Show, where we talk about ideas that matter. I'm Lori Fitz, your host, and I'm glad you've made the connection and are with us today. Our show, unfortunately, we have had some technical difficulties in getting my co-host, Melissa Adams, who is the president of the Diversity Institute, uh, being able to join us today. So Patrick and I are taking this opportunity to explore racism from the white person's point of view, uh, because we've all been impacted by racism. We've all been hurt by racism. We've all carry a trauma and we all need to heal. And a book that Melissa and I have been using as part of our guide this last year is The Racial Healing Handbook by Annalise Singh. And we were at chapter eight uh, for a conversation between uh, Melissa and I, but uh, unfortunately our technical challenges have proved it be unsuccessful to get um, Melissa connected in today. So Patrick, uh, who is the producing director here uh, today, is joining me for the conversation as we take a deeper level look at some of our own racial privilege in being white, uh, looking at perhaps other identities that we have as well, and how does that impact us. We're also looking at socialization and liberation. And what I mean by that is you may have already heard about um, how socialization is really you know, part and parcel of what racism is. Uh, it, it becomes something that we get from our, our, our church, our school, our family, our friends, um, Unconscious bias perhaps gets passed on, uh, attitudes, ideas that are not necessarily conducive. (laughs) In fact, they're not conducive. They actually create barriers for success for people who are not white. So we look at our privilege um, and what do we do with that? Sometimes when we're uncomfortable, Patrick shared in in the first segment, we tend to 
fade to the back and not want to say anything. Um, Silence is one of our responses. We can feel a dissonance inside of ourselves. Um, We might even get angry, but we don't know what to do with that anger and the guilt. Um, We may start feeling bad about ourselves. And, And that may be why some of the folks in Virginia, you know, it triggered them to want to not have critical race theory taught, which is a pretty easy answer since it's not already it's not being taught in the schools. So not having it is is probably one of the easiest check off the box that they will not be teaching CRT uh, in Virginia. But what do we do with our own challenges uh, of ways we've been socialized to believe about race that we may not uh, have taken a full time to really do a self-inventory about what that means. I think sometimes the idea or the solution is, well, I just don't want to make waves. Let's just stay where we are and do nothing and eventually it'll all get better. Um, And the ostrich in the sand approach is a lot of what white people do just because it's just too big to deal with and we don't know how and we're not in situations perhaps that lend themselves to that. Perhaps we're living in an environment where there's not much multicultural, so we don't have to face it. But I believe change is important. Um, we're living in a difficult time where we're deeply divided. And I deeply believe in connections. I deeply believe in finding the ways to connect. And that means working, means taking the time to raise our consciousness. It means educating ourselves. It perhaps means taking a stand and questioning and reframing it. And that's what we're doing today. Patrick and I are exploring what does that mean? What have been our experiences? Um, Patrick shared some of the challenges he's had in not knowing what to say or what to do. Um, I had a situation where I knew I completely blew it when I made a presentation. And I knew that I had um, not been thoughtful. And that lesson has stayed with me. I was working with the American Cancer Society, and I went down to the west side, and I took my little video at the time and plugged it in, and all these social workers and great people in the west side were there to learn about ways we could partner uh, to deal with cancer because uh, it has a disproportionate impact on people of color. And I felt in my heart I wanted to do the right thing and be able to support uh, making sure the messages of prevention and early detection uh, were shared. So I made this presentation using our video on taking control, and it told all the wonderful things that you needed to take control in your life, and that was making sure that you had um, fruits and vegetables, healthy fruits and vegetables, and you exercised, and it went through all of these things um, that I thought were great ideas. You know, these are things that people should know about. And after I made my presentation on taking control and how we wanted to bring that message to the West Side, I was just met with silence and uh, no one asked a question and no one wanted to be (laughs) uh, giving me any feedback. And so I stood there for a moment. I said, well, I can walk out of this room. And as soon as I walk out of the room, I know you all are going to start talking about how I blew it. And I know I've blown it just by the reaction of your faces and your folded arms and not uh, wanting to give me any feedback that I've done something very wrong. Now, that can happen and you all can, you know, dismiss me as, you know, the young white woman that came in and tried to do good. Or you can tell me how I blew it because I know I did. And the social one social worker opened up and said, well, you come in and you want fresh fruits and vegetables. You know, we're in a food desert. 
how do we get fresh fruits and vegetables? And it's very expensive. You want me to tell people to buy fr- fresh fruits and vegetables and they can't afford it? You know, what, what choices do they need to make? You want them to go in for their early detection. Well, they're going to have a hard time um, getting uh, access to medical. And if they do, they have to maybe take a day off to, to get their mammogram. I have a woman that had a broken arm that went into the canning factory every day because she had to choose whether or not she could put food on the table or she could take a day off and she couldn't take a day off. You think she's going to take a day off to get a mammogram? And another social worker responded said, you know, cancer is a privilege. You know, we have to work with very baseline issues here. And that blew me away. And I realized how many things that I just assumed that people had access to and that people could have and that people just needed to know these fun facts to know and tell um, that could make a difference. And it wasn't sensitive. It, it didn't read the room. It didn't look at how poverty was in, impacting this community. It did not look at access to care. It did not look at um, the ability for people to make those choices and that all it did was um, create a, a, a barrier uh, in terms of knowing that they should do these things, but that they can't, was not really helping. And and it was a moment for me to look at, this is a bigger issue. This is a, a challenge, even though here I am trying to work with diversity and inclusion and trying to bring down the barriers. Um, I got to look at all the different situations that, that these individuals are facing. With that, um, the American Cancer Society at that time did a partnership with the West Side, and we were able to start looking at how do we do community solutions together? Um, what impacts access to healthy foods? We started doing things with um, our great uh, farmers markets, and you know, how do we reach people where they're at? And it's just a pause, and it's just a asking for feedback. How can I do this differently? It may seem hard to, to, to ask direction when you know that perhaps you've overstepped or you've made an assumption, um, but it was a real gift. It was one of the most important gifts I've ever learned in terms of working in diversity, inclusion, and equity is how, how can I ask people to teach me what I can do to support them as an ally? instead of coming in with an assumption of this is what you need to do. I mean, even the name of our program at that point, taking control. Um, how might that be reframed um, so that we can empower people to make healthy choices and support them in the areas that they have had barriers? Patrick, my friend, tell me about a situation that that you faced where you've needed some guidance and how did that go for you? Well, it's actually a situation where I'm still looking for some guidance, and it's kind of where I want to admit that I don't have the answers is, you know, we talk a lot about um, institutionalized racism, which is obviously a big problem, and it's, you know, because I like to, not like to put it, but I, you know, think of, you know, it's easy enough for me to see racism when I see a, you know, a person you know, using coded language or not even coded language, just, you know, dropping racial slurs. But, you know, I don't work in housing offices or doctor's offices or places where racism is so rampant. Like, I don't know what to do about, I don't know what to do about housing discrimination. That's kind of where, you 
I'm at is, you know, what what can I do about those those where where this is the most harmful because I'm not in a you know I don't like I said I don't work in housing I don't work mm-hmm. in a doctor's office I don't you know I don't work in a bank when you know a person of color needs a loan I can't I don't know what to do to change mm-hmm. those issues I, I think it comes back to if we don't know are there policies out there that we can learn about you know, uh, and that's what I love about connections is is allows me to reach out when I don't know. Um, there's a, a a couple groups that are out there that are doing some fabulous work in terms of housing and working to get. Uh, and I've I've hosted them on the show where they've been able to take a look at um, petitioning for better housing and more affordable housing. Uh, I think it's a matter of how do you research, how do you get out there and find your passion for those things. And we all have some resource time available that we can do in volunteering. And the volunteering may be looking it up on the computer and being able to say, I want to know more about this. And then I know nonprofits out there after working in nonprofits for over 30 years. Um they want people to support them. And there are, you know, specific ways. It gets back to me for advocacy and politics. We all have a vote. You know, we all have a chance to at least support our beliefs through voting. But very often, you know, it, it, it's not something that people look too deeply in. It's like, a well, yeah, yeah, voting. How, how many people voted for um, – their city council this year. I did. <laughs> I actually researched and, and cared about it. Um, and I wanted someone that had uh, a real uh, commitment um, to me, a, a buzzword, not buzzword, that's the wrong way of putting it. Though the issue that is very, the issues that are very important to me are multicultural. Does, does the individual who is running for whatever office have a heart for multiculturalism? If they don't, I don't want to support them. Um, it, it may be as, as simple as that, just researching and, and making sure you, you have your vote so your voice can be heard. And then if you do have a passion or if it's something is, you know, I heard you say both medical office and housing. Maybe, Patrick, you and I will host another show together and, and we'll um, have some individuals that we can connect with that allows us to look at, you know, where are those options? But follow your heart. Um, that's the big aha moment that I had when I was reading the um, the book that Angelise Singh did on your on the workbook uh, of addressing racism. Ultimately, we can't go around feeling terrible. We can't go around with self-loathing and guilt, and and that's not what healing's about. That that does not heal. That only makes it more challenging. Ultimately, when we can love who we are, we're more capable of supporting others. We're more capable of reaching out because we're not doing it out of guilt or shame. We're doing it out of a deep um, need to connect, a deep need to feel that we have the ability and the strength and the power and the initiative uh, to make things different. And to make it a better place for all. And that if we believe that our country was really created, that all people are created equal, and we want to live that out with pride, 
then the idea of being able to support all and having uh, barriers come down so that we truly all can be successful and pursue happiness, which is a part of our, our who our country is, there's a lot of people unhappy out there. And we can make a difference not by reacting and feeling guilty and shame and, and run away, but standing up and saying, I'm here. Count me in. Uh, I want to make a difference. And I believe that we can get to a place in this world where there is not so much angst and tension just over very superficial things like the color of the melanin in our skin. Uh, We can get past this. We can be bigger people. And we'll be right back after a few commercials and we'll continue our conversation. Welcome back to Connections Radio Show. I am so sorry that we had technical challenges in bringing Melissa on today. Melissa is the president and executive director of the Diversity Institute. And the Diversity Institute believes diversity is everybody's business. And the potential of all individuals is important. Uh, We were not able to connect up with Melissa, but we hope to bring her back soon so that um, we can hear her perspective as well. One of the things that I I really enjoy about our first Saturday of the month is to be able to get Melissa's perspective and my perspective and have a a real dialogue of coming together and connecting and what does it mean to heal. But as I promised, we, we've we talked about uh, the white person's perspective this week. Patrick and I have been exploring our, our issues and ideas when it comes to it. Um, Patrick had shared, sometimes he just doesn't know what to do. Uh, and he's not interfacing with housing or he's not interfacing with medical offices. But what can a white person do if you're not doing any of that? Well, and I, I suggested go to the, if there's something that you care about, Go ahead and go to the um, their web, go to a, your Google and Google up an idea that you think is important here in Minnesota. There are nonprofits out there that are there to support. Now you might not be able to come in and do just everything that you want to do and tell the nonprofit what you want to do. You got to listen. You got to figure out what they want and what they need. Um, but it can bring great joy to volunteer. I'm going to encourage um, by doing that, by volunteering, by caring, by learning about the issues. We can start to perhaps transform some of these institutions by having more voices. When we're starting to look at the policies, the assumptions that are behind the policies, always question who's got the power and can something be created that allows for power to be shared? How do we, how do we have our own healing by figuring out how, how to share the power in ways that are meaningful and powerful? And I think ultimately that means spreading hope that we can make change. It means feeling inspired. When people say, oh, I'm so tired and fatigued, why? Why are we tired? Why are we tired of this? Um, we don't get tired when we want to do something right for children. We get inspired. We, we care about animals. We get inspired. We care about um, the climate. We get, yeah, there's a lot to do, but we're inspired. So why aren't we inspired? Why are we fatigued and not inspired? Let's look at that. Let's get inspired about living out dreams. We can have our dreams and sharing with others. We can be authentic in our care. 
And as a white person who has a lot of privilege, and I know I'm talking to a lot of white people out there with a lot of privilege, how do we share that privilege? How can we deconstruct um, the challenges that have been faced for centuries one step at a time and feel good about that one step at a time? Patrick, you only have a couple more minutes left, but do you have any closing thoughts in terms of thinking about this and having a conversation, white people figuring out how we are a part of undoing racism? Well, I think the big thing, and I think you've kind of had this as your underlying theme, is white people just need to listen. And oh, and I'll throw out another caveat is that white people need to stop assuming that people of color are a monolith like one group thinks this way and the another group thinks this way which kind of goes to stereotyping but you know i wouldn't assume that you have you know that you think a certain way um because you're white but you know don't you know but we have to extend that to you know that other people have their own thoughts and they they might not even match your perceived notions, but mm-hmm. you know you need to listen to what they're saying, even if it doesn't fit your notions, and you can't dismiss it because it doesn't fit your notions. And how we can open ourselves up to learning through a great mechanism, uh, I believe in nonprofits. Go out and find a nonprofit that maybe is something that's outside your comfort zone, that um is a culture that perhaps you don't know very much about and you want to learn something and do something. Nonprofits are set up to give back. And ultimately, that's the other thing I want to encourage us white people to think about. In what ways every day are we giving back? In what ways can we extend our privilege to support more people to have privilege? Um, so that we don't have all the obstacles out there. We can start looking at those obstacles, not with dread, but with hope in terms of what we can tangibly do. If you don't feel like volunteering, you know, give, give some dollars to, to a nonprofit that's doing good work and that's doing good work in an area that you may not know much about and that you want to have a difference. Now, do your homework on the nonprofit, but give, give generously. We're looking at this is the season of giving. I know um, that the November 30th is the day that um, the whole world looks at global giving and on a global giving Tuesday. Think about how we can make that difference uh, in changing the world and be excited about it because we can. We can connect. We can reduce obstacles and barriers and create a place where we all can have the opportunity to be successful and to live out our dreams. So I'll leave you with that today. How are we going to achieve our dreams and support others with their dreams? Martin Luther King had a dream. We each have a dream that can make the world a better place. Go for it. Thanks for connecting today. Glad you were here. Have a good week.